Do you think you're right? Well, do you? <laughs> How right do you think you are? We, um, we live our lives based on the fact that we think that we're right about stuff. Like if someone, you, you may have met someone who, uh, who thinks sometimes that they're, they're wrong all the time, right? It's, it's, it's a very disordered life when you live your life thinking that you're wrong. Are you with me? Like instinctively we think, no, I think I've got a good read on this. I've got a good read. I, I think I know what the right thing is to do and how to go forward. Um, it, it's an interesting thing just to kind of think about how right we think we might be. Could you ever be 100% right? You know, the bottom line is uh, we all kind of give our opinions from one time to another, all right? And uh, sometimes our opinions are wrong big time. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? I mean, some of us are probably just a little bit more hesitant. Um, I just kind of hold back a little bit. I'm not going to put it out there because I could be wrong big time. Uh, but it doesn't mean we still don't have opinions that we think are right. I've been wrong about lots of things. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, this year was the blues year. in the state of origin. I, uh, I'm realising more and more that I've been wrong about my own view of myself. You know, you have this view of who you are and you realise over time, you just go, well, that, that was like really quite out of step with reality. There's things that I've said as a preacher since I've been preaching that aren't right. Now, I don't get up and I, I don't intentionally get up to deceive people but you get up and you preach and you say things, and this morning I'll say things as far as I can judge, that I think are right and true and good. But as you get older and you learn more information, you realise the things that you didn't know, and all of a sudden that kind of changes a little bit. And you just kind of go, well, I, I might have said that differently. I might have said it differently to the way that I'd actually said it. So sometimes when, you know, Matt said earlier about how he'd gone back and listened to some vintage project, I, I kind of duck a little bit inside you know, because I just go, oh, okay, I hope they're quoting something good. Um, because I, I, I'm not, whilst the scriptures are infallible, I'm, I'm not. People were meant to be sure about God and unsure about themselves, but in our culture, people are sure about themselves and unsure about God. And I want to just stop and, uh, and look at uh, knowledge a little bit. Um, and understanding for a bit and start with a really, really well-known uh, biblical text. You know this one, Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make straight your paths. Now if you've been in the church longer than about three weeks, you've probably heard this one. Okay, Some of you may not have if you're, if you're new to church. But... There's a part of this, uh, this little wisdom saying in Proverbs that is harder to do than it is to say or to read. Look at that little piece right in the middle. Do not lean on your own understanding. Now, you and I have leant on our own understanding probably in the last week countless times. Like countless times. Any time that we think that we know better, we need to be careful. We're on shaky ground. Here's the thing. I don't want to be rude to you, but you probably don't know better. Probably no one in this room knows better. And I want to throw out five reasons just at the start today why you shouldn't lean on your own understanding. You ready? 
is the first one because you don't know everything. You have got not even the head of a, like the pointy end of a pin in terms of knowledge of what's actually possible to know. Like that's what you know. Like you just don't know that much stuff. You're a 128 megabyte flash drive in a world of supercomputers. That's what you are. You just don't know that much stuff. You know, to have a perfectly correct view on what is going on, you need to know everything about everything simultaneously. And you don't. You don't know everything about everything simultaneously. You see, and even if you did know everything about everything simultaneously, you would need to actually have the computing power to do something useful with that. You don't know everything. Here's the second thing. You actually weren't made to know everything. What's the first thing that God does after he creates humanity in Genesis 1? He talks to them. Why does he talk to them? Because they need revelation and understanding from him to do what they're supposed to do. They're not kind of complete in and of themselves. They need revelation from God. So you could put it this way, that Adam and Eve are revelation receivers. Like a radio receives a signal, God's created humanity to receive regular signals from him to help interpret their world and see what they need to be doing. We were made to work out how to live life and how to view life through God's lenses, not our own. We weren't sufficient in and of ourselves. Don't lean on your own understanding for that reason. Number three, because you're physically unable to see from all the perspectives necessary for a fully informed view of what is happening. You, you have like one perspective and sometimes people really kind of stretch and they kind of think and they try to work out what are the other perspectives that you could see things from. And I don't know, I, I don't have any research on it, right? But it's probably, um, I don't know, at, at a guess, maybe you could see from three or four different perspectives at the same time, maybe, okay? But then what, what else is out there that you don't see, that you don't understand about? What about all the unseen things that are going on? We believe the devil was an angel in the beginning that turned against God and you can't see him and I can't see him. Sometimes people have kind of had visions of him but most of the time you just can't see him. Like what's he doing? What's he doing around the place? He's usually got his angels messing things up. I mean, you talk about unseen things, you think about even what God does, right? Like who has just been confused sometimes by the way that God does stuff? So what, what are you doing? Why are you doing it that way? Like that's in reverse. Can you just do it the proper way? You know, like the way that I'd like you to do it. There's an unseen thing that goes on there. What about the invisibility of God's purposes in the middle of stuff? When stuff gets really messy and really difficult and really hard and you think you've got a good read on it, but hang on, you haven't got a clue what his purposes are in it and what he's doing with it. The end purposes that he has in mind. You know, and people often, um, in the middle of suffering and in the middle of struggle, cry out to God and it's understandable and say, why is this happening? I can't see a good reason why this is happening. I think Tim Keller was the one that made the comment that um, the decision that God makes in us going through suffering is the same one that we would make if we had all the information that he had. See, there's a lot of unseen stuff going on. Here's the fourth one. Your view is unalterably subjective. You're sitting in a hall in Toowoomba in Australia, in a Western country. 
That's a massively different perspective from someone who's sitting in a refugee camp in the Middle East. Do you get what I'm saying? And you couldn't, even this morning, you couldn't possibly begin to imagine the fullness of what it's like to actually be a refugee in a refugee camp in Syria or on the, on the edges of Syria. Now, I'm not bagging you for not knowing that. It's just like you're subjective. You're born in a particular time and place. You have money. You've been educated in a particular time and place. And you bring all of that to bear on the way that you understand things. You just can't avoid it. So you just want to be really careful leaning upon your own understanding at that point because you realise, I have such a narrow view of reality and what's going on. I need something from the outside. And the final insult I can put it that way, is this one. You're not that smart, all right? You're just not. Even if you think you're smart, you're not that smart. God made you and he made me to grow in wisdom. That's the way he's made us. He made us to grow in wisdom as we get older. I'm sure that what you know now far exceeds what what you knew only 10 years ago. I mean, education talks about the fact that people are lifelong learners. You never stop learning. That's the way the whole gig works. People who stop learning are dangerous people. Who knows that? <laughs> and here's the ultimate, here's the ultimate maybe insult, but I think, it's, I think it's really nice to just think you're not that smart. All right? It's actually a bit freeing to just go, you know what? I'm not that smart and I need lots of help from people around me. That's a spacious place to be in. All right? Thinking that you're really smart and that you've got everything kind of squared away and worked out is a really confined, claustrophobic place, right? Because you've always got to be proving it. One of the things uh, I used to say to high school boys in the uh, school here when I was teaching here is I'd, I'd call them up close to me, you know, if they were a know-it-all, I'd call them up close to me and I'd just whisper to them and say, listen, I said, I know that you know everything. You know that you, have, you know everything. Now you've just got to convince the rest of the world that you know everything. And they'll have a crack at that, right? Because they're teenage boys. But the truth is we don't know that much stuff. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That's us, all right? We'd all put our hand up and say, yep, we're the foolish ones. And he chose us to shame the wise. You see that? I mean, the Bible, it kind of insults you sometimes. But it only insults you if you think that you know stuff and you think that you're right. If you've got humility in the way that you think about things, then you hear that and you go, you know what, that's pretty true. That's pretty true. So we're left with a fundamental need for humility when it comes to knowledge. We want to not be so confident that we know stuff. These are kind of creational attributes. But as you kind of look at the world... Um, do, do you like ever see humans doing stuff you just go like what are you thinking we're doing that do you ever see that just go, like are you even thinking like let's just start with that if you could just fire up boot up your brain there on that bit you'd be right and there's lots of funny examples of this I'm just going to give you a few just uh, to lighten things up a little bit this one here Gloucester cheese rolling have you heard about this it's like I love hearing about stuff like this and then my mind traces back and I just start thinking about there's a couple of dudes probably at the top of a really steep hill one of them for some reason has got a round bit of cheese right <laughs> and he goes why don't we throw this down and chase it down the hill 
And now there's, it's a thing, right? This is a little bit of footage from uh, the Gloucester cheese rolling this year. Now this guy's won it like about 18 or 19 times. You can't, you can't hear him, but like, check that out. And like, what is the deal? Like, I just cannot see how those dudes at the bottom have passed any kind of risk assessment for that gig. <laughs> like, yeah, we'll be at the bottom and we'll take you out with a shoulder hit as you come past so you don't hit the wooden fence. Yeah, that's way better. Gloucester cheese rolling. Let me give you another example. Um, some dudes decided it would be cool on a beach to send a donkey up on a parasail. Strange sightings in the sky. Was it a bird? Was it a plane? Well, in fact, it was a donkey. And images of the terrified beast dangling from a parachute drew the wrath of animal rights activists the world over. But as Artie's Timofey Krasuk reports, despite accusations of cruelty, the man responsible looks likely to escape punishment. You might have seen a house fly, maybe even a super fly, but I bet you ain't never seen a donkey fly. <laughs> and you probably never would if it wasn't for a seaside PR stunt. Sitting on the beach, I saw a parachute go up and couldn't quite figure it out. I saw four legs, narrowed my eyes, a donkey. That's <laughs> what you do. Get your pet donkey, bring him down to the beach and stick him in a parasail, all right? And you just go and look at that and you just go, well, I don't know, there's something that's probably maybe not quite right about the way people are thinking about that. They had animal rights activists get on that news story. I remember that one a few years ago. Um, and then one of my personal favourites, um, air guitar. Have you guys even heard about this? Like, you know what air guitar is. There is there's like international championships for air guitar. And I'm sure there would have been an Australian rep that would have gone over who was an air guitar rep for Australia who won the Australian competition. And when I, this is the uh, 2017 finalist for air guitar. Probably enough. <laughs> People do things, strange things that don't seem to make sense often. Uh, we're going to laugh this stuff off as just crazy fun, but um, we, you know, when we think about it uh, and we look a little bit more closely, it's not hard to see there's a bit of a sinister thing that's happened that's kind of skewed the way that people think. You know, you look at people around you, and you think you, you, you're not thinking straight about something, and and the things that we see around us where people don't think straight have very, very real consequences. See, when sin uh, entered the world, things got serious and often difficult. And sin has a massive effect on the way that we think. It actually twists the way that we think. And this, uh, according to uh, theologian, is, theologians, is called the, the noetic effects of sin. And that is the effects of sin on human thought, reasoning and knowledge. It'd be really worth you reading Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 talks about the fact that uh, the issue with humans is actually not a lack of evidence, but the suppression of it. Um, 
Is everything all right, Ray? He's nodding at me. <laughs> He's still on the air guitar thing. You see, sin actually makes you and me and everyone else in the world crazy. Have you ever had that experience? You see someone doing something crazy that doesn't make any sense because their thinking is impaired. Sin's the thing that actually has that effect. Listen to this from uh, John Frame. He says, sin is irrational. Why would anyone turn from the beauty and joy of covenant life with God and embrace its opposite? Or why would anyone think he could succeed in opposing God's omnipotent power? Satan is the example. Evidently, he thought he could replace God on the throne. Although we generally consider Satan to be knowledgeable and intelligent, and although many opponents of God seem wise to the world and to themselves, they are guilty of the worst imaginable stupidity. They haven't a ghost of a chance to defeat God, yet sinners embrace sin with reckless enthusiasm. This is the root of its noetic effects. Like it's just a crazy, crazy thing. Would you be the enemy of God? Like, do you see that? Like that's just dumb. Like it's really, really dumb to become his enemy, but that's what humanity has done. Like this thought that, yeah, I, I think I can beat him. Like, like you look at the devil and you just go, really? Like you're going to kill Jesus and somehow you think you're going to beat God? Like it's the definition of God. You don't beat him. He never loses, but there's this insanity that kind of comes out in the way that people deal with this sort of stuff because of sin. I mean, have you ever done something that you thought God didn't see? Do you know what I'm saying? Like that moment where you just kind of sneak something in and you just go, I'm just going to do that really quickly and he's not going to notice. No, serious, I've done it. Has anyone here ever done it or am I the only sinner here? A few of you, right? You just got, like that's insane, isn't it? Like he knows everything. It's totally irrational. I remember, uh, and I shared this a while ago. Um, I'll get to that in a bit. What about this one? Um, How many times have you thought you were great? Like you're just not that great. I know that's really, that sounds really harsh, but you're just not, and I'm not. Like seriously, like think about it. Like the world record, I think, for a heavy weightlifter in the... um, the clean and jerk, I think it is, is about 250 kilos. So do you see the problem? Like humanity gets proud and then they go, I'm great. And they think they're so great. And it's like, at best, you can lift a quarter of a ton and you think you're great. You with me? It's like, and on top of that, you live for 80 years, buddy, and that's it. And it's really, you're great? What about this one? What about people willing to give their eternity away for the present? And I'm not even talking about people who don't know Jesus at this point. I'm talking about people who know Jesus. They know the truth about Jesus, but they'll take the car and the house and the money rather than the rewards that God offers. I mean, we sat down, we sat as a family at our table a little while ago and uh, read Luke 6 about loving your enemies. You know, and Jesus says, I'll give you a reward if you love your enemies, right? And people who persecute you. Now, I said to the boys, I said, do you think Jesus would give good rewards? They said, absolutely he would. Like, no question, he would give really good rewards, right? But I can tell you, like for all of us, probably this year, people have done things to us 
And we've just gone, nah, I think I'd prefer the reward of getting someone back than what Jesus would give. And I'm just telling you, like, the reward that Jesus will give you for loving your enemies far exceeds getting someone back. But that's the insanity of sin, right? It just makes you a bit loopy and a bit crazy. We'll just exchange what we can get in the present rather than the eternal. What about this one? Um, how many of us have thought from one time to another that achievements make you valuable? Really? Like I drive down the street, I used to drive down the street and check out other four-wheel drives and I'm just going, that's pathetic, doing that. That, that thing's going to be rusting. Every four-wheel drive you can see, aside from one that ends up in someone's shed, they're probably not driving it anyway, if they're wanting to keep it as some kind of museum piece, is going to end up rusting in 20 years. It's either going to be melted down or rusting in some wrecker yard somewhere. What, like that's ridiculous, isn't it? Is anyone with me? Like, you get a nice phone. Like, you get an iPhone and you think, this makes me something. Like, that's just dumb. Is, I'm not having a go at you. Is, it, is everyone okay? Like, it's just dumb. Like, you just go, like, that's really stupid. Like, and it's not even the phone that makes you something. It's the fact that you just had enough money to buy something. It's like, I went to the shops and I bought something that's really cool and so I'm a cool person. You with me? I like it's not even about phones, it's about everything else. Like I got this and I got that and I got this and I got that, and that makes me someone. You just go, oh, it's just pathetic. Like it's it's just it's not right. What about in the moment when we trade God for the fulfillment of a temporary desire? What about that one? It's get as temptation comes for something, anything. And in that moment you just go. You know, I'll just have that instead of Jesus. Like, when Jesus comes back and you see him fully for who he is, that will look like the most ridiculous thing you've ever seen. Like, why on earth would you swap him for something else? Because sin messes with your head. It messes with the way that you think about stuff. What about this one? This is something I've been grappling with myself. Uh, what about the inertia that comes with reading the Bible and praying? Like, what on earth is that? Does anyone here ever have that experience where you just go, I want to sit down and spend time with God, read my Bible and pray, and just in, there's an internal resistance inside of you sometimes where you just go, I don't really want to do this. And all of a sudden, all these other jobs in the house come online. You just go, oh, that's urgent, right? That's urgent, man. I've got to, I can't have that leaf sitting on that chair outside. I've got to get out and clean that out. Whoa, there might be some spiders under there, and all of a sudden, half an hour is gone. Look, what is it? Like, God is... When he is fully revealed to you, he will be the most desirable thing ever. Like you think about the most pleasurable, desirable thing that exists for you right now. When he is fully revealed, he will be infinitely greater in value and, and enjoyment than the greatest thing that you can think of. But what do you do when you get up in the morning or when you do it in the afternoon? You just go, oh, it's a bit of a grind. Really? Like a grind? You with me? Like that's, that's kind of a bit, that's embarrassing. You know, and I, man, I've, I've had to repent to God. <laughs> right? Where I just say, it's really embarrassing because I know you're really great and I'm really lame right now and I'm just struggling even to get to this point where I'm going to read the Bible right now and talk to you. Sin messes with your head. 
It's an insane irrationality, foolishness. It's not that we can't know some things. It's just that, our, that there's a power at work that steps in and twists things for us. Sin kind of makes us crazy. This is what you see in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 3. The heart of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. You see, rationality, sanity and order exist in the person of God, in the person of Christ. All reality has been created by him. And you know what sin is? Sin is the creation or the invention of an unreality. That's what it is. It's like bringing into being a false reality that you think exists, but it's not actually the true reality. Like it's a false reality for Peter to be resistant to reading the Bible and praying when God is so desirable. Isn't it? Like that, that's just a false reality. And so what we actually do is instead of living in the reality, we kind of sidestep and we, sin causes us and twists our minds into living in this false alternate reality. It's a reality that's not real. It's just simply not real. And pride is a classic example of this. Pride makes you think that you're great and that the opinions of other people really matter. Like in what sense do the opinions of other people matter at all? <laughs> See, it kind of gets twisted. Now, in the midst of this, I'm not saying for a second that humanity can't arrive at, at some things that are true and reliable. It's just kind of a mess, a, a twisted kind of mess. This uh, guy, Arthur Schopenhauer, uh, said this, he said, we'll gradually become indifferent to what goes on in the minds of other people when we acquire a knowledge of the superficial nature of their thoughts, the narrowness of their views, and of the number of their errors. Whoever attaches a lot of value to the opinions of others pays them too much honour. Yeah, I think Arthur's onto something. But Arthur died alone. <laughs> he did. He died alone. I think with a few cats from memory. That's it. Now that, that for me, that would be hell. Dying with cats around would be hell. I'm not a cat guy. They make good speed bumps. That's a bit rude, isn't it? That was almost a cat joke then, wasn't it? No, I'm, I'm okay with anyone who's a cat person, but um, I'm not up for cats. But what's, what's the point there? Arthur's onto something. He's onto, he's onto something that's true about the world. Um, and so I'm not saying that we can't get onto things that are true. Is it? At some level, we've got to disconnect from the opinions of other people to move into what's real. Because hyper-concern about the opinions of other people take us out onto this uh, tarmac that's, that's not real. We can grasp something, but sin has twisted our thinking. Now, I just want to pause for a moment. I want to invite Wayne Davis to come up. Do you want to just come up near Wayne? Oh, got you on a short leash, mate. That'd be all right. I'll just introduce, introduce you. You can uh, weave your magic up there if there's a bit more length there. The reason why I've asked uh, Wayne to come up is uh, Wayne's kind of engaged in some areas where... Um, yeah, sure. Wayne's engaged in some uh, areas where... Uh, in 
cultural kind of areas for us where people are not for Christianity at all. Okay, some of you might even be aware on the city that there's a bit of a move to stop Christian kids giving out Christmas cards in state schools. All right, and I've just invited him up to share a little bit of that because he's involved in some kind of area. He moves in those kind of circles a little bit to get you, give you a little bit of a feel about the way that people's kind of agenda and, their, and sin kind of blinds us all, but specifically blinds people that are, that are pushing some agendas around the place. Um, anyway, I'll just leave it to you, mate. Thanks, Nick. So um, when you guys are discussing issues or values in the public square nowadays or doing the very best to live a godly life out in the community and in the greater society, who here feels like their views and their life is like that of the majority of our fellow Australians? Do you feel that? Well, as Pete said, my role is I, I move in some political circles and media circles that I watch both sides of left and right and all the sides and, and arguments and public discourse that's out there, people who defend traditional values and conservative values and, and those who wish to oppose. So, in the latest census, only 52% of the population identified as Christian. Atheist groups are celebrating the decline of Christianity and the prospect of a nation without God, while cultural relativists and are heralding a brave new world of multiculturalism. So, with the majority of our nation identifying as Christian, although those numbers appear to be declining, for those here who are Christian, do you feel that you are part of the greater Australian majority? Just think on that over the next few minutes. Now, contrary to popular sentiment, the loss of the Christian faith is not cause for celebration or apathy. Christianity is the generative principle of the free world. Without it, liberal democracy will become hollow and the light of liberty will be put out. Despite Christianity being the leading religion in Australia, no religion was ranked first on the list of possible responses to the religious affiliation question in the latest census. Have a think on that for a tick. Uh, so this and some of the following thoughts are from a journalist called Jennifer Oriel who in a recent article from The Australian. Across the West, governments are withdrawing funding for Christian groups while activist networks intensify the war of attrition against the faithful by means of propaganda and lawsuits. Religious freedom exists in the 21st century West, but the cost imposed on Christians who exercise those freedoms can be prohibitive. In the education sector, the media, as seen in the ABC this week with, I don't know if some of you guys saw it, just the, um, the cherry-picking of reports to illustrate that you know, evangelical Christian men who attend church sporadically are more likely to beat their wives than anyone else. But the report also said that Christian men who attend church are the least likely. Once again, the media just picking out what they choose to drive their agenda. And even in the military, there is an advocacy against Christianity. The anti-Christian position is invariably couched in the language of diversity, inclusion, and minority rights. Uh, as Pete mentioned before, Education HQ and also the Australian newspaper had articles just this week saying how primary school yards, could, primary school yards could become Jesus-free zones with Queensland education officials making moves to ban children from making any reference to the figure of Christianity in the schoolyard. A 
apparently the Christian the apparently the Queensland Department of Education and Training had identified junior evangelism as an issue to be stamped out. The department expects schools to take appropriate action if aware that students participating in religious instruction are evangelizing to students who do not. End quote. God, please help us to use our knowledge to help others. This statement is also apparently banned. With suggestions on the handing out of Christmas cards to be restricted to RI classroom only. The report for the further read, this could adversely affect the school's ability to provide safe, supportive and inclusive environment. Supportive and inclusive. What's truly going on here, do you think? What's so offensive about Christianity at the minute? What's so offensive about Jesus? All of our society knows, all, all of our society knows, that Jesus taught forgiveness, putting others first, and true love for your fellow human beings. Does despite the decline in professed Christianity, the core values of Western society are intrinsically Christian? For example, do you believe that it's good or bad to murder? Cheat on a partner, steal, lie, or treat a person like they are inferior? Most people would consider such behaviours unacceptable. In the West, they are either illegal or elicit social scorn, meaning something to be disapproved of. So, why does it appear that today's culture does not want to accept the truth and teachings of Jesus? Perhaps it's a simple case of being at odds with our we-can-do-whatever-we-want-whenever-we-want-to-do-it lifestyle. After all, equality and my rights as an individual, they come first, don't they? In her article, Jennifer Oriel wrote, Australian society and the virtues, values we cherish are the fruits of a civilization built on the word of Christ. Nowadays, to state such a truth is to invite ridicule. We are supposed to attribute the virtues of the modern free world largely to science, technology or the enlightenment. Uh, Jennifer finished her article by saying, Christ gave us the soul of Western civilization and the form of freedom. We owe him more than our scorn. So once again, why does the culture of the day want to believe and embrace anything but Christianity? It appears we'll put anything in our heart except that. Believe it or not, Australia was created as a nation under God. For the moment, our leaders still pray the Lord's Prayer in Parliament at the end of each sitting day. If you listen to news radio, you'll hear them. And it might shock you that they would say the Lord's Prayer at the start of the day. Yeah, they quickly get on to business, but they still pray that. Um, but there is a small group, yet loud group, who are busy trying to have the Lord's Prayer removed from Parliament. We have to ask ourselves... Why would government shape policy, some might say panda, to a minority that wants to put their non-Christian views and beliefs before the Christian ideals that our nation was built upon? Remember for the moment that 52% of our population identify as Christian. Perhaps the non-Christian voices are simply louder than most. Or perhaps they proclaim their cause a bit better than, or a bit more passionately than the silent majority do. 
those who claim to live out a Christian life. Paul wrote in Timothy, verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Like Christ, we are meant to live a life that is not subject to the beliefs and culture of the day. Yet it would, pe- it would appear that the 52% are largely silent on most things we should hold dear to our heart in love and truth. Now, yes, it can be very challenging to live a life that is countercultural and even more challenging to speak that truth in love. Paul also went on to say later in that chapter that, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted. Who wants persecution? I don't. Does anyone? (laughs) No, of course not. But we should want God's truth ahead of anything else. Remember, Jesus lived a life irrespective of the culture of the day and even more so spoke the truth and love out of the truth and good stored in his heart we would do well to do the same. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mark. Thanks. So I trust you uh, kind of took away from that that there's a... Um, the tolerance toward Christianity is uh, is decreasing. I think there's, uh, I heard a number of years ago that there's an organisation, um, a group of solicitors in America uh, that was formed a little while ago and their objective as solicitors, uh, were Christian, Christian lawyers in America were, were there to actually defend the rights of Christians so that Christians weren't discriminated against with com- compared to other religions. So other religions were getting a run and Christianity was kind of getting shut out of stuff. So this organisation, this group of lawyers said, we're going to defend and we're going to go to court when they get discriminated against. And I think, I think we are entering a little bit of a phase like that. So I appreciate Wayne kind of sharing that. Um, I'd love for us to have a look at uh, the text for today. So if you could get your Bibles out, that'd be great. If you need to sneak up the back and grab one because you don't have one, um, that'd be good. I'll just finish the introduction, but we're not going to be here till lunch, okay? Ephesians 4 we're going to, so if you can go to Ephesians 4, that'd be good. Ephesians 4 verse 17, we're just going to go 17 to 20. Might be 17 to 19 actually. 17 to 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Uh, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You can see a bunch of problems here. Just keep looking at that text there. Their thinking was so distorted that they ended up in folly, in... in, uh, in foolishness. They kind of lost touch 
with reality. And you can see there um, in verse 18, the end of verse 18, the issue ultimately isn't a thinking issue. The issue is that there's a heart problem. Their hearts are darkened and alienated from the life of God. You see, um, there's been a pretty long, how do I put this? The view that, that, that the seat of human motivation and behaviour is thinking has had a pretty long day in the sun, all right? And uh, Paul's kind of saying here, your thinking kind of gets warped. And the reason why your thinking gets warped is because you've got a heart problem. So there's a deeper motivational core to you and me and to everyone else than just our thinking. It's a worship problem. You know, the, the notion in our culture that if we get our thinking right, then we'll get our living right is just wrong. I think it's true sometimes, but it's just wrong as a general rule. You see, part of the heart, the human heart, is the mind, the will, and the emotions. So the mind's going to be in there. Thinking's going to be in there. It's, it's kind of a partial truth. The mind is a part of the action, but it's not the seat of the action. There's a deeper reality going on. Listen to this. Uh, Ash- Ashley Null, Dr. Ashley Null, who's an, American, uh, an Anglican um, minister from America, makes these comments about Thomas Cranmer's theology. So Thomas Cranmer was around about 1500. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury, a leader of the English Reformation. Uh, This is what Ashley Null comments about Cranmer's theology. He says, according to Cranmer's anthropology, what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. The mind doesn't direct the will. The mind is actually captive to what the will wants. And the will itself, in turn, is captive to what the heart wants. He goes on to say this, The trouble with human nature is that we are born with a heart that loves ourselves over and above everything else in this world, including God. In short, we are born slaves to the lust for self-gratification, i.e. concupiscence. That's why, if left to ourselves, we will always love those things that make us feel good about ourselves, even as we depart more and more from God and His ways. That's a penetrating comment in the last sentence there. That's why, if left to ourselves, we will always love those things that make us feel good about ourselves. I mean, you can see that, can't you, in our culture? That's kind of whatever decision you need to make to feel good about yourself and where you're going, that's the one that we'll take. You can see here uh, in Ephesians 4 that Paul says that there's three major problems, that we get hardened. I remember... uh, I started out as a manual arts teacher and I, I heard about a fellow manual arts teacher who was a big time guitarist who, uh, who got calluses on his fingers from playing the guitar so much. And when he'd teach the kids how to use the disc sander, which spins a couple of thousand times a minute, and it's got a disc of abrasive paper on it, he'd say to the kids, don't ever touch it like this when it was going. And he'd put his fingers against the disc sander. Of course, the kids would go, <gasps> like that but it didn't hurt him why because he was actually he had his, his fingers were covered over with calluses and it was all dead skin they weren't sensitive anymore you know this is what sin does to us it alienates us from god and makes us hard and puts a hard protective coating over our, uh, our sensitivity and then the second one there you can see paul saying in ephesians 4 there that we pursue impure things riotous excessive living unrestrained sexual behaviour, impurity and greedy to be impure. Do you see this? And it ends up in this vicious kind of cycle. You know, the desire to participate in it is more and more. And new perversions are needed to replace the old perversions. 
That's, that's where we live. That's, and like, you should just look at this and just go, yeah, I, I can see that in me. Um, I can see some expression of that, that I go after something and it becomes this insatiable thing where I just need to get more and more and more and more of it. But like, I'm not just talking about something that's like a unique thing on the scene of history. This is what, as, this is the mechanism that's operated in sin since it came into the world. Like, this is just how it works. You, you go after something, then you give yourself more to it, and then you want more of it, and you've got to get a bigger high and a bigger high, and it goes right through from being addicted to uh, drugs, to chocolate, to people's affirmation, to the fridge, to shopping, whatever your poison is. This is kind of the mechanism. This is how it works, and it becomes... I mean, it's insane in a sense to go after something that makes you impure it's doubly insane to go after something that makes you impure that makes you more thirsty for the same thing like that's just crazy isn't it like you yeah well yeah like arsenic yeah let's get a bit more of that you know it was on the news last night that there was a guy that went through the mexico u.s uh, border i think it was somewhere over there and he had he had some bottles of highly concentrated methamphetamine in liquid form and they got him to drink it. Because <laughs> he said it was apple juice. And he drank it four times and he was dead within two hours. That's what we do, right? That's what sin is. It's like, yeah, let's get some of that. And then once is not enough, let's get some more of that. And let's just keep drinking poison. Like it's, it's insanity and it's, it's kind of an enslavement. We get, kind of get trapped in it. That's what Paul's saying here. It's like, not only do we go after impurity, but we've got this lust for more and more of it. Let me give you some good news. This is where we finish. How do we get out of this? Open, uh, well, have a look in your Bibles again there at Ephesians 4. I'm going to go verse 20 there. 20 to 24. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What we need is a new heart, folks. We need to be made new. That's what the first three chapters of Ephesians is all about. How do you get that? Do you know how you get that? Go back to the text here. But that is not the way that you learn Christ, right? That's like a no-brainer, right? This is verse 20. You just go, yeah, of course, all right? Getting involved in stuff that darkens your heart and deceives you and makes you impure and makes you less able to think about stuff. You don't learn Christ that way. How do you learn Christ? Verse 21, assuming that you have heard. Now, in the Greek, it doesn't include that word about there. Assuming that you have heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Do you know how the whole process gets reversed? Is Jesus speaks to you. And for these people, they didn't get to speak to Jesus in person, but he spoke to them through people who taught him, who taught them about him. Does that make sense? Now, that might sound really basic, right? But when you think about it, that's the way the gig works. You learn Christ by him speaking to you. So go back just in, for those of you who love Jesus and you had a, a time in your life where you gave your life to Jesus, what did Jesus say to you when you decided to turn away and take off the old self and put on the new one? What did he say to you? 
because he said something to you. And 99.9% of the time, he's speaking through scripture, right? He said something to you. Do you know what he said to me? I can be your father. That sounds really bad. I probably just dishonoured God by saying that, right? But that's kind of what he said to me, right? I remember reading this scripture and just going, he is an awesome dad and I would like one like that. And he told me about who he was. And then I reached out to him. And in that moment, at 16 years of age, I decided that I wanted to put off the old self and put off the darkened heart and I wanted a new self. I wanted to be renewed by him. How did all of that happen? He spoke to me. That's what he did. What about this last week? (laughs) Because this whole idea of putting off the old self isn't just something that you do the first time around. It's a process, it's a, it's a renewing thing that God's doing all the time. So let me ask you this. What did he say to you this week? What did he say to you this week that caused you to want to just put off the old self and to walk into the newness and the renewal that he's got for you? Because I tell you, if you've been in his word this week and you've been reading it and you've been praying, he's been speaking to you this week. And he's been telling you things that lead you to put that off do you know one thing that he said to me this week it was late one night uh we needed to go to bed go to sleep and i just thought i've just got to read some scripture my wife's going can you do that outside so the lights not on while i'm trying to go to sleep and you know what i read these i said i just i just need to read a few verses and i read these few verses and you know what one of them was Uh, it was a psalmist saying to god um the psalmist praying to god teach me that I say, say unto me, I am your salvation. All right? Now, it was in a moment for me where there was a great deal of pressure. And I was very anxious. And you know what I did before I went to bed? I went to sleep. I prayed and I said, God, I need you to be telling me that you are my salvation. Who here knows that you're under all sorts of stuff too? When you're under pressure, it's like, there's like a whole assortment of things you can run to. And God's needs to tell us, hey, listen, I'm just reminding you, Peter, that I'm your salvation. He's just going, tomorrow you need to tell me that. You need to speak to my heart regularly. I am your salvation. It was in that moment, Christ spoke to me through the scriptures. I wanted to put off the old self and put on the new. Do you see that? It's just kind of how it works. How many times has that happened to you? Probably can't count them. Probably don't even know. Probably throughout your history, God's spoken to you so many times through the scriptures, um, through Jesus, the word of God. And you've, you've put off the old self, you put on the new. You could be excited about this. Because he's really kind like that. That's the effect that it actually has when Jesus speaks. And what, have a look back there at uh, Ephesians 4, 4 verse 24. And uh, just finishing up. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. Now what does that remind you of? Does that remind anyone here of anything? It does. It reminds you of Genesis. What about Genesis? Yeah, made in God's image, right? So this is like a perfect scripture for the project, right? Restoring true humanity. Why? Because true humanity is as a person that's made in God's image. As Jesus speaks to you, what's he doing? He's restoring you to looking like him. How good's that? Because he's so good. That's what he's doing, and he's doing that all the time. And God is so amazing at how he does this. God just doesn't... God kind of, when he restores you, he makes you better than the original. That's what he does. 
And Paul here is kind of saying, hey, that's not us anymore. We're not the old person anymore. So let's make sure that we're always putting on the new. One of the lines I've been saying to my sons quite a bit of late is this line. We are Sondergeld boys. That's not what we do. This is what Sondergeld boys do. Do you know, that's the same thing that Paul's doing here in Ephesians. He's like, all right, you belong to him. This is what we do. It's, it's now, it's, it's something that God's changed in us. He's renewed us. But it's also, there's a not yet side to that where he's still bringing something about. Can I finish on a quick story? You guys are right. In... Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis's book, uh, Prince Caspian, there's a scene, there's uh, a kid called uh, Eustace, a rotten boy. He's found himself in possession of a large fortune. He imagines the life and comforts he could now enjoy, and in his comforts, he falls asleep with his treasure. When he awakes, Eustace is no longer a boy but a dragon, the outward manifestation of his inner greed and selfishness. The gold bracelet he had put on his boy arm was now constricting his dragon leg and the pain was piercing. Even worse, the physical pain mingled with the pain of realising he was now cut off from humanity, isolated and alone. He begins to weep hot, dragon tears. And in mercy and compassion, Aslan arrives, the uh, representative of God, of Christ himself. And Aslan leads Eustace to a garden on top of the mountain and to a well at the centre of the garden. Uh, Eustace, I'm going to read out of uh, the book here. Uh, Eustace recounts his interaction with Aslan to Edmund. Well, anyway, I looked up and saw the very last thing I expected, a huge lion coming slowly toward me. And one queer thing was that there was no moon last night, but there was moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer. I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough. But it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand. Well, it came close up to me and looked straight into my eyes and I shut my eyes tight. But that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. You mean it spoke? Well, I don't know. Now that you mention it, I don't think it did. But it told me all the same. And I knew I'd have to do what it told me, so I got up and followed it. And it led me a long way into the mountains and there was always this moonlight over and round the line wherever we went. So at last we came to the top of a mountain I'd never seen before and on top of this mountain there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it there was a well. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it. But it was a lot bigger than most wells. It was very big, round bath. It was like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything I thought. If I could get in there and bathe it would ease the pain in my leg. But the line told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I, that's what the line means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bathe. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. 
Oh, that's right, said I. It only means that I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bathe. Oh, dear. However many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began to pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it, hurt like, it hurts like bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done it myself, the other three times only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, ever, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much for I was very tender underneath now that I'd no skin on and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. Listen to this final statement. And then I saw why I turned into a boy again. That's what God's doing. That's what he's doing to you. That's what he wants to do to other people. He's turning us into what we're supposed to be again, rather than being dragons. I wonder if you just stand with me and I'll pray. Jesus, you, uh, you speak to us and uh, the side of your speaking to us, it is like this story with Eustace that, that hurts us and we feel the weight and the pain of our guilt and all of the things that we've done. But your intentions are always good. You are in the business of renewal and restoration, renovation, redemption, of fixing broken things, of purifying impure things, of satisfying people who are insatiable through running after impurity. God, would you help us this week by speaking to us? That you would lead us to not put the dragon skin back on but to stay who we're meant to be, to stay what you've created us to be, become who we are. And may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, 
our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.